If you will, turn in your Bibles to the third chapter of the book of Revelation, beginning in verse 7, as we continue our study through the Word. Now, we have been looking at the seven letters that have been written to the seven different churches. And, and you remember that each of these churches was an actual church in an actual city. And, and the Lord now is writing to their specific situation and circumstances. We have taken the first five churches. We are on our sixth church now, our second to last church. And that is the church of Philadelphia. This this is representative typologically of the faithful church. And so you'll remember that we talked about how each of these churches represents a typology, which means that those are churches that are in existence today as a typology. But we also recognize that each one of these is representative of a slice of church history chronologically moving from the day of Pentecost all the way through to the present time. And so we will look at the slice of church history that, that these represent as well. But we come now to the Church of Philadelphia. And the Church of Philadelphia is representative of the faithful church. You will remember the first church was Ephesus, and that was the loveless church. You remember that that was followed by the second church, Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. Then came Pergamus, which was the compromising church. Then came Thyatira, which was the corrupt church. And then last time we saw Sardis, and that was the dead church. But Philadelphia is the faithful church. And so we begin as the Lord now writes this letter, verse 7. It says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. Now, Philadelphia, we see, was about 28 miles away from Sardis. It was a prosperous city, but it was a small city. It wasn't one of the great cities of their day. It was prosperous because of its location. You remember the, the three laws of real estate. Location, location, location. And so it had location. It was located right on the major thoroughfare, the major freeway or highway that connected all of Europe to the east. And so tremendous uh, merchandise traveling in both directions along this uh, highway. And here was the city that was situated right on it. It was uh, also considered to be an outpost uh, city. It really was out in the area, the region of Phrygia, but beyond that were the barbarous tribes that lived in. And so it was planted as a missionary city. It was founded by Atalus Philadelphus, who was a, a king of Phrygia. And, and so the name Philadelphia came from him. Philadelphia is a compound word. We see that it comes from phileho, which is love, and adolphos, which is brother. So Philadelphos, uh, the brotherly love. And we see that this name, the name of the city, brotherly love, we see that this term is used in the scripture seven different times. And so uh, the city of brotherly love. 
we're going to notice in this letter that it is considered to be the faithful church. And, and remember how each of the churches followed the same structure, the letter. It always began by the Lord identifying the city that it was being written to. It was followed next by a description of the Lord, then would be followed by the aspect or the fact uh, that the city itself or the church itself would now have its commendations and, and then there would be, but this I have against you and, and there would then be the rebuke that we would see and then there was the promise to the overcomers. We see in the church of Philadelphia that there is only going to be commendations. There isn't going to be any rebuke to this city that this is a church now that is a faithful church. And so we will notice that. But it says now to the messenger and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. One of the aspects of this city that was part of its historical basis is that there were a lot of earthquakes in that area, in that region. And Philadelphia was a city that oftentimes would have these earthquakes. And whenever the earthquakes would come, all the people would flee out of the city for the buildings would topple down and would pose great, great danger to them. And, and then they would run out to the countryside. And then afterwards, they would wait for all of the aftershocks to settle down. And they were always nervous about coming back into the, uh, the city again and when they would have to run out again. The city itself was leveled and uh, A.D. 17, and, and then it was rebuilt by Tiberius. And, and so it was a city known for the shaking of the ground and the running out and coming back uh, into this city. And so to the church uh, that is there, we see he says in verse 7, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So Jesus reveals himself now with attributes, with two character attributes. Number one, he represents himself as he who is holy and also, secondly, he who is true. Now, you'll remember in the first five churches that the description of the Lord was always taken directly from the vision that we saw in chapter 1. Here to this church, it is not taken from that vision, but we see instead the Lord keys in on his attributes. The first attribute that he keys in on is the fact that he is holy. Now, there is only one who is holy, and that is God. And so when Jesus Jesus declares that he is holy. We see that this is now ascribing deity unto Christ. We are seeing the authority of Jesus Christ in his holiness. Secondly, we see that he is holy and he is true. Now, the word true in the Greek language, there were two different words that we would translate into our English language, both of them as true. Number one, 
would be the difference between true and false when you've got a true and a false statement that this is one sense of the word and true which means that it is correct but the other word that's used for the word true is true as in compared to real or genuine here we see that this is the second word that is used it means that he is the real one that he is the genuine one and this again speaks of the fact that he is the Messiah, that he is God incarnate. And so we see the manifestation of the authority and deity of Jesus Christ in his attributes of him being holy and also him being true. Now the description says, he who has the key of David, key of David, what is that? That's an interesting term. That's an interesting phrase that we have here. And the key of David, we see that that is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 22. And in there, we have this passage that talks about the, the key of David. It says, then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now, Eliakim was the servant of of uh, King Hezekiah. And so Eliakim, uh, who is the, the servant, is now going to be handed by the king the, the key uh, to the house of David. And so it says, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt, and I will commit your responsibility into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. So King Hezekiah gives to him the key of David. The key of David is representative of the palace. You'll remember how David had built himself a, a palace. And, and then how he bemoaned the fact that the Lord was dwelling in a tabernacle, in a tent. And how he wanted to, to build something splendid for the Lord. He wanted to build a temple for the Lord. But the Lord wouldn't let him build the temple. Instead, Solomon builds the temple, David's son. But the house of David is his own palace. And so here we see the key to the house of David is the key to the palace. He's giving it to the servant. The servant now can open those doors to those who would have access to the king, and then he would be able to close the doors and, and to keep people from access to the king. And, and so the idea here is, is that Jesus Christ is that doorway into heaven, into eternity. And when we come before him, the doors will open and we will enter into eternity. But when an unbeliever comes, those doors will be closed. And, and so it speaks about the, the authority of Jesus Christ as that gatekeeper into heaven. Jesus declared when he was in his earthly ministry, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except uh, through me. And you will remember that that point was emphasized in the Garden of Gethsemane when he agonized uh, right before he was arrested and, and scourged and crucified. And he cries out to God, is there any other way that mankind can be saved except that I go to the cross is there a back door? Is there a side door? Is there a, a, a plan B? 
And do you remember that there was a reverent silence from heaven? And Jesus' response was nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. If there was a side door, if there was a back door, if there was any other way into heaven, Jesus Christ didn't need to go to the cross. But there is no other way into heaven except through the door of Jesus Christ. When he opens it, no man can close it. And when he closes it, no man can open that door. He is the only avenue into eternity and into the presence of the Father. And so to the faithful church, he reveals himself, he declares himself that I am the way, the truth, and the life. To this church, he says, I know your works. And see, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. He begins by saying to this church, I know your works. And I find that so comforting, the, the intimacy of Christ's knowledge of us, that, that he doesn't stand afar off from us, but he knows our risings up and our lying down. He watches us in, in the battles that we go through. And, and those battles began in our life, our spiritual battles began when we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And, and now we had implanted within us the Holy Spirit. And now there is a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And that flesh and the spirit battle every single day. And the Lord says, I'm watching the battles. And this is what he's noting. I'm noting all the victories that you're getting over the flesh. The Bible says it will stand before the Bema seat of Christ and, and there will be the rewards for the, the victories that we have acquired in our life. He says, I see you. He's rooting for us. He's interceding at the right hand of the Father for us. And he, he, he knows. He knows not just your actions, but he also knows your thoughts. He knows your intentions uh, of your heart. And he says, I, I know your works. And, and then we see that he gives them three praises. He says that, that you have a little strength, you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. And so he begins with the commendation. You have a little strength. We see that each and every one of us has a little bit of strength. But added to that little bit of strength that we have is the deutimus, is the power of the Holy Spirit that is implanted inside of us. And God is not calling us to live out our lives in this little bit of strength. The little bit of strength is not going to give us victories on the battlefield. The Bible says that when we're weak, then he is then he is strong. And so we use that little bit of strength to cling on to the Lord by faith and to access the power of God in Christ Jesus. And, and so here was a church that wasn't trying to do it in their own strength, that was connected by faith to the Lord. Second, he says that you also have kept my word. This was a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church. This was a church of Bereans. And 
You'll remember that the Bereans were the ones that took the word of God and tested everything against the word of God to see if, if these things were true. How important it is that a church keep the word of God as the central piece of worship that we don't stray to the left or to the right from the word of God. We see that, that the Bible tells us that we're not to add to or take anything away from the word of God, but that we would allow the word of God to be that meeting place. The Bible is alive, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern and pierce even between bone and marrow. And, and so here, this was a church that stayed true in the word of God. And, and then finally, he says, not only have you been faithful in the word of God, but also you have been faithful to Jesus. You have not denied my name. What does it mean to deny his name? Does that mean if someone comes up and asks if you're a Christian, you say, no, I'm not a Christian, and, and you deny being a Christian? No, that's not the sense. It means to deny the character of Jesus. It, it means that we can say with our mouth that we're a Christian, but then not be living like a Christian. When we're not living like a Christian, when we're not living out the word of God, they were faithful to the word, but not only to the reading of the word and the studying of the word, but now to be living out the word of God. And so we need to be careful that, that we're not denying the Lord in our actions, in our speech, in our conduct, uh, in our daily living. So if this is a church that had a little strength and used that strength to stay abiding in Christ. It was a church that was true to the word of God, studied the word of God, upheld the word of God, and it was a church that was living out their faith actively. He says that I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Now, remember that the city's identity was that as a missionary city. Their mission was to take the Greek culture and the Greek language and to be able to spread it out uh, beyond the, into the frontiers. And, and so this city was taking the Greek culture, and now the church that was in that city was commissioned to use the advance of the Greek culture and the Greek language to be able to take and to spread the gospel now behind it. The unification of the world into the Greek language is what allowed the spread of the gospel behind. It is interesting how the gospel came behind the Roman roads that connected the world and the unification of the language into the Greek language and the Greek culture. And so here was this outpost missionary city to the Greek language and Greek culture, and now this church is called to follow behind that culture and the language with the good news, with the gospel. He says, see, I put you right there, and I've opened up a door for you to, to follow, to walk through, and to take that good news to the people that are sitting in darkness. He says in verse 9 now, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So apparently in the city, they were being persecuted by this group of people. Here they are identified as a synagogue uh, of uh, Satan. Now, 
A synagogue. What is a synagogue? A synagogue is a local community of God's people. Remember, the Jews were God's people. There was one temple that was in Jerusalem. But the Jews, wherever they are spread out, they have their local community center where they would come and worship on a weekly basis. They would read the Torah and study the scriptures and learn about their faith. That was their synagogue. But here, it's not called a synagogue of Jews. It's called a synagogue of Satan. And so we see that there is this collection of people and they're identified as Jews in the next line who say they are Jews. A Jew means here in this context, they're God's people. But he says they're not and they lie. So there is some conflict going on within this city between the Jews and the Christians. And, and so to this church that is just continuing on in the scriptures, continuing on in the worship of the Lord, he says, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, the difference today between Jews uh, and Christians lies in the fact of who is the Messiah. We both worship the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, Yahweh. We're in complete agreement upon that. Where we disagree is Jesus. They don't believe that Jesus is uh, the promised Messiah. And we do believe that he is the promised Messiah. And so they now were in conflict with, with these Jews. Here, Jesus says that one day they will come and worship at your feet. Now, it doesn't mean that they will worship us, but that's a reference now to the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And you remember that the church is going to be raptured and that we are going to sit with Christ. <coughs> When Christ is enthroned. And the Bible says that there's going to come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when we are with Christ as his bride and they come and bow down and worship, they will bow down before us as well. Not to worship us, but to worship the Lord. And what will they discover? They will discover that God loves us, that we are children of God. And so that is going to be a, a revelation truth that is going to come to the Jews. So to the church that was in conflict with the Jews over this area, we see that he says, just continue to persevere and, and truth is going to win the day. He says now in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Because you have kept my command to persevere, because they just continue to abide. This is the faithful church. And so they continue to abide in Christ. And so now what is the promise? He says, the promise is that I am going to keep you from this trial that is going to test the whole earth. Notice that the trial is not a local trial. It's not a community or a city or a continent. It is the whole earth. This trial that Jesus is referencing is the great tribulation that is going to come upon the face of the earth. And what does he say to the bride of Christ, to those who persevere to the faithful church? He says, I am going to keep you from this trial. Now, 
There is a big difference of keeping someone from or out of instead of preserving you through it. He doesn't say, I'm going to keep you through this trial. He says, I am going to keep you from. I am going to keep you away. The preposition is out. I will keep you out of this trial. And so this verse right here points to the pre tribulation rapture of the bride of Christ of the church. And so we'll be talking more about the, uh, the tribulation and more about the rapture. But this verse uh, here is a verse that teaches the pre-tribulation rapture uh, of uh, the church. In verse 11, we see the Lord says now to this church, Behold, I am coming quickly. I want you to know that that word quickly doesn't mean soon, but instead it means uh, rapidly, suddenly, without warning. So when the Lord comes, it is going to be a, a surprise. It will come at a time when we're not expecting him. He's going to come quickly when he comes. And, and so he says to hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He's talking about the crown of righteousness, which is what we receive for persevering in our faith to the end. You remember the apostle Paul. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And therefore is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, our righteous judge shall give, but not to me only, but to all those that do love his appearing, 2 Timothy tells us that. And so this crown of righteousness we are going to receive. He says, stay, stay holding on to that. Continue to persevere in your faith. And he says in verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. And so the pillar now pictures strength and stability and, and this beauty. And he says that he will make us to be pillars in, in the temple of my God. He's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem and the eternal state. And then what does he say to this city that's always having earthquakes and people are constantly running in and out of this city? He says, and he shall go out no more. You are never going to have to run out of heaven for safety because of earthquakes or anything else and, and just as speaks to the permanence uh, uh, of our eternal salvation in Christ. When we are in heaven, it is going to be forever. And how glorious that is going to be. Paul says the glories of what God has uh, prepared for us aren't even, that the trials of this life aren't even worthy to be mentioned uh, compared to what God has prepared for you. And so we will be these pillars in this temple of God. And he says, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. And so we see that writing the name, it, it, it now speaks of identification, uh, of belonging to God. I remember when I was young and in Little League, we, 
Write our names. I wrote my name on my baseball glove, and there was my name, and on my bat, uh, so that when they were all thrown in and mixed up with the team, you could identify what was yours. And and the Lord writes His name on uh, us when we're all mixed up together. He grabs, no, this one's mine, and this one here. See my name's on it, and and He writes His name on us. Term of. Adearment, affection, and ownership. And he will write the name of the city of my God. The city of my God is the new Jerusalem. There's going to be a new Jerusalem. Jesus is going to rule and reign in righteousness from Jerusalem, the current Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem for the millennial reign, for the thousand years. But then there is going to be the final judgment that will take place and the whole earth is going to be melted, is going to be destroyed, and heaven is also going to be destroyed. Why? Because both of them became corrupted. When God first created them, they were beautiful. They were perfect. It was good. God looked at his creation, and it was good. But then you remember that corruption entered into heaven, Satan led a rebellion against God, took a third of the angels and rebelled, and the corruption infected heaven. And and then here on earth, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and corruption entered into the earth, and, and so after the judgment and into the eternal state, this is all going to be destroyed in a new heaven, an uncorrupted heaven, in a new earth is going to be created in a new Jerusalem is going to descend uh, from the heavens and so purified and spotless the new creation that is going to take place. In verse 13, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And, and so here we see the promise given to the Philadelphia church and The challenge to continue to be faithful uh, is certainly God's word to his whole church and to us today. As we close our study here, I want to draw attention for a moment back to verse 7, back to where it says that he who has the key of David who opens and no one shuts. And to me, it was the idea of what God opens up. No no one can oppose the, the will of God. What is it that God opens up? And I thought the way that God opens up our eyes, first of all, that we can see the things that we never saw before. We can see his beauty and his holiness. And and he gives sight to the the blind, to the spiritually blind. He, He gives us that sight. He gives us ears to hear a still, small voice that speaks so softly, so gently to us. He gives us open ears to be able to hear his truth come forth in in our lives. He gives us an open heart that the seed of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ can enter into a, a fertile heart that we might be able to receive that gift of salvation. And he opens the doors uh, to the kingdom of heaven for every single one of us who accepts Jesus Christ and the gift of the forgiveness of sins and of eternal salvation. And when he opens up that kingdom to us, when, when we are saved, 
saved, no man can close the doors on, on our salvation, on our relationship with, with Jesus Christ. He opens. No one can, can stop what he opens. And, and how beautiful that is. It led me to ponder how each and every one of us has a birthday. We are given our certificate that tells the whole world the, the very moment that we breathed our first breath and cried. That's, that's our birth and certificate. The, the date and the time that you were born. Your length and your weight are also included on there. And that was the beginning of your journey here upon this, this earth. That was your beginning point. The next most important date that there is in, in a person's life is the day that they receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. It's the time that they receive their second birth certificate. This one now recorded not on paper here on earth, but recorded now in heaven. And your name is written in the, in the Lamb's book of life. And, and from the time that you're born to the time that you accept Jesus Christ, that your only purpose is to discover the gift of salvation and to be united to God into an eternal relationship. And that is your sole purpose. You were created for fellowship with God for eternity. That's what he created you for, to love and be loved by your maker. And, and if you have not done that yet, then, then you have not accomplished the single most important purpose of your entire life is to fall into the arms of the creator God and to receive the forgiveness of your sins. And, and then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit and the angels rejoice and, and your name is now written in the Lamb's book of life. But once your name is now written in the Lamb's book of life, then, then the next date will be the day that you breathe your last breath. And the span between your second life and, and your physical death here, now that you're able to accomplish the the purpose of, of being saved. The first step was to get saved and to enter into that eternal relationship. And, and once you've entered in, then what is the purpose? What's the purpose with the rest of my life? Do I just meander through this life waiting for the next life, waiting for the eternal life? Do I just kind of try and get through this life the best that, that I can now as a child of God, knowing that I have the hope of heaven and I have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that is no. You absolutely have a purpose and a commission. And your purpose as a child of God and your commission is to now reflect the light and the love uh, of God to the world that, uh, that knows nothing of him. You see, the church in Philadelphia was a missionary church. Their purpose now was to bring the gospel in behind the open door that, that was given to them, to, to now come into the culture that doesn't know the light and love of Jesus Christ and, and to now bring that light and love into that culture. And, and that is the purpose of the faithful church is to be able to Bring the light and love of God into the culture that is around us. And, and the Bible says, and see, I've opened up a door for you. 
See, the Lord has opened up a door to each and every one of us to bring the light and the love into our culture, into our sphere of influence. And when we got saved, we had the impartation of the Holy Spirit into our lives. I think of the Shekinah glory of God. Think of the brightest light that you can possibly imagine, even brighter than the one that sits here in, uh, in Vegas on top of the, what? The Lexor and lights up all the way into space. Uh, I hadn't forgotten. I was just testing you guys uh, here. I want you to imagine a light that's that bright, the Shekinah glory of God. And God puts that inside of this cylinder, into this vessel, this glass cylinder, which is our earthen bodies in, inside of you. But this glass cylinder here is just covered with muck and mire and dirt and filth of, of the culture and of self. And, and so the, the light barely can even leak out uh, uh, at all. And then the Lord begins to sanctify us. He takes a scraper. <laughs> and he starts scraping some of the, the crud off. And like a razor blade that just takes one little scrape and and now there's a little tiny of line of light that you can see that is inside of this uh, cylinder. And, and then we go through trials and, and difficulties and hardships and chunks start to come off of the outside. And, and these broken lives, and now it cracks the, the covering of, the, uh, of that which is corroded around it. And more light and, and more love starts to come out of our lives. The process of sanctification is the Lord's work of, of scraping and cleaning and windexing and hacking and chunking and, and breaking out the, the, the world that the glorious light that is in there already now can start to be experienced by those that are around us. And the more of the world that gets chunked out and the more clean, the more love starts to come out of our lives. As we abide in Christ, uh, he is the one that is doing that, that work. He is the one that sanctifies us, that, that cleanses us. And, and we are to grow in our faith and and more of the fruit of the spirit, more of the illumination of that love and light will come out of our lives. Jesus Christ is the perfect glass cylinder over the Shekinah glory that came. Man incarnate with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside. But that Shekinah shined absolutely perfectly out of that glass. There was no darkness, no crud, perfect light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And now, each and every one of us have that glory of God's light and love within us. And as he continues to scrape and, and to fashion us into his workmanship, his poem, not us, 
We're not to take the scraper and try and scrape ourselves uh, here uh, and get this off. That, that's the Lord's word. Our job is to abide. Just abide in him. And then he says, and I've opened up doors for you. Our job is to bring the light and love of God into every single person that we touch. Every single person that we touch. To the people that right are within our own homes, starts right there. The people that we greet in the morning, to love them and to light them up with the love of Jesus and Christ. To, to not take and dim the Shekinah glory by obsession with self and being consumed by self, but to be able to see others and to love others and, and to be able to love every single person, whether they're strangers or cashiers or friends or neighbors or co-workers. Every single person that you come in contact with today is a door that God has opened up to you. It's a door to walk through. And to be able to love them. Jesus said, if you give them a drink of cold water in my name. Not even a gospel track. Just a glass of cold uh, water. Just loving people. Everywhere that you go. As we continue to remain in the word of God. We read the word of God every day. We worship God every day. We pray every day. We abide in him he keeps on scraping. We keep on loving. And we keep on lighting up the light and the love of Christ. You see, I've opened up a door for you. And the Bible says that he who's faithful in the little things to him, what? More will be given. He'll create more opportunities for you to continue to love and light the, uh, the doors that he opens up for us. But right here today, right now, you have people that you will come in contact with the rest of today. And we'll never have this day back again. And these relationships that we have today, we might not have them tomorrow. They might not be here tomorrow. We might not be here tomorrow. And so we light and love through the open door that we have today to every single person that we touch. And may we be counted faithful as we look forward to receiving that crown of righteousness and being received by him into his eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And God, help us to take advantage of that open door that you have set before us today. Help us to love like crazy the people around us today. And may we not squander this open door May we not squander today, but Lord, may every day we wake up and walk through the open door that you give us each and every day. We love you, God. Thank you for loving us. Bless us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Next